I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but there's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. KYC. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, it was one station and you listened to it. KYC. <laughs> That's Steve Sneed talking about KYAC, the Black-owned radio station that brought Black music and news to Central District residents from 1965 to 1981. I remember um, also that our local bands were on the radio, like Cole Bold and Together, which featured the twins, Jamar and TC, TC for Top Cat. They had a song called, This is a Dedication to My Beautiful, My Wonderful Black Sisters. This was the kind of music they would do. And, but their biggest notoriety, why I mentioned them, is because Kenny, Kenny G was discovered by them and later became Kenny G. They found him at a high school, Franklin, and asked him to join their band, and he did. So his sound that you even hear today is reminiscent of Cobalt together. I remember going to see them at SU in the gymnasium, and it was a big, it was a big deal because you heard them on the radio, right? You heard the songs on the radio, and then you could go see them walking to from my house to SU and see them on a big stage with lights. I'll never forget how that looked. I saw them at Garfield, and they weren't the only band. I mean, there was you black at the Black Community Festival one time. I remember this one band, the guy drove up, he drove up in two big limousines and the band members all got out in the middle of the field <laughs> and went on stage, you know, that's part of the show. So the radio and the music, the local bands, they were all together, you know. I mean, that was the only way you could communicate about what was going on, like concerts, festivals. KYC was the, the you know, that had the ear of the community. So all the messaging came from KYC. So when that left, for us to do things, especially with entertainment, it was, it was, it was really disjointed for a long time. I think only through social media now, there's a, the finding of a new way to connect. But the older generation still misses that, I think. They, you know, they really understood it and, and uh, yeah, yeah, the radio was important. When we interview Central District residents, many of them talk about community media 
radio, newspapers, and even television as an important source of community connection. In this episode, we'll hear stories about how Central District residents relied on community media for entertainment and information, how those media outlets provided training and job opportunities, and how Seattle's Black community was impacted when some of those media outlets were lost. Seattle has had a few Black periodicals over the last 100 years. But the longest standing paper is The Facts, now known as the Northwest Facts. The Facts newspaper was established in 1961 by Fitzgerald Beaver. Mr. Beaver was very active in the community, and he mentored people like Chris Bennett, who went on to start the Seattle Medium newspaper, and Bernard Foster, who started the Scanner newspaper. My name is Robert Stevens Jr. I was born in 1946. I'm a 65 graduate of Garfield High School. We were, we were there in Beaver and then was over here and I just can remember him ordering food and me running it over time. And so that's how I first got introduced to Mr. Beaver. Robert Stevens was 13 and working at the hamburger stand across the street from the facts at MLK and Cherry the first time that he met Fitzgerald Beaver. He used to call it the pink rag. He said, no, I want my paper to be different so people can recognize it. They don't just think it's one of the other newspapers around here. That was the nickname. It was pink, the newspaper itself. It sort of brought home back to me because down south, you know, you have your own newspapers and your own radio station. So it kind of brought back a place that I could read about the stories of my community, people that look like me in other communities. So I think it was one of the anchors. It, it pulled people together. It gave them an avenue to let them know about the events, the programs going on in the community, the news, where the other newspaper left off, or if there was a big concern that we needed to work on the community. But yeah, it was, it was our little local pink rag. Robert Stevens shared another story that highlights why it was and is so important for neighborhoods like the Central District to have their own media outlets. The first time I ever went to jail was at Highline Community College when we sit in on the editors of a newspaper that wrote this uh, horoscope about what would happen to you each month if you went to the Central area. This was during the time that uh, Larry Gossett and his crew was at the UW instituting a Black Studies program and what they call Black Studies Union. They started at the UW and kind of spread out to junior colleges. We were in the process of trying to start as one of the student organizations, our BSU, and they really didn't want us to have it. At that time, Highline had 3,000 student enrollment and 15 of that student body were black. It was sort of uh, these 15 black folks are coming on our campus trying to start all this black stuff. And we were trying to get the professors to teach black studies. And they were saying, well, I'm not black. I can't teach black studies. And I found myself presenting before the faculty on how you can teach black studies. And the uh, editor of the newspaper, he was just not, he was just not having it. It was like on his editorial page. He did an editorial and just took each month in July, if you go to Central Area, you're going to be right on this corner of, of the Central Area. And us 15 
uh, did a sit-in, and the, the sheriff came and picked us up and let us out the next day. But anyway, we, we were able to, um, uh, after going to jail, <laughs> we were able to do it, and uh, they accepted my curricula and started developing their own curriculum, what have you. But, but this you know, newspaper guy just wasn't having none of it, so that's how we ended up in jail, because we thought we were going further than we should have gone to help you understand we want to do the same thing you want to do, uh, but he just wasn't having it. We started out this episode hearing Steve Sneed talk about KYAC Radio, and we'll hear several more stories about that station and its role in the community. But there was another community station in Seattle that, in its final years, was located in the CD at 23rd and Jackson. K-R-A-B, Crab Radio. Crab was only the fourth commercial-free, listener-supported radio in the country when it went on the air in 1962. You never knew what you'd hear on Crab. Freaky music, poetry in foreign languages, radical commentary. Zola Mumford listened to Crab. It was cool to have community radio here. Um, I, actually, I remember listening to KJET. Um, I was starting to get into different types of music, and also KJET would sometimes play second wave ska which I was, and reggae, which I was, for me, just discovering getting interested in. So I listened to KJET a bit more, but K-R-A-B, Crab, um, I used to listen to Crab a bit because they would have all kinds of interesting stuff, and I think they had Pacifica radio shows. Um, also, it was just here in the neighborhood where um, Mary's uh, Mary Wesley's Flower Place, um, yeah, it was in that building. I went with Mom there for a, a live radio interview that had to do with history and the um, Central District, and that was probably my first visit to a radio station. It was very exciting, and everybody was, everybody there was like, they looked like my parents' friends. You know, it was like multicultural, and people just kind of relaxed. And I, I to this day, wish I know community radio is coming back, but I, I, I wish they'd been able to hold on a little bit longer. That was a good station. Crab went off the air in April of 1984 after its license was sold to a commercial broadcaster. Let's listen to a few moments from Crab's last night on the air. And now stay tuned for the SeaTac Gospel Train with Sister May Campbell. Old SeaTac Gospel Train to let you know what's happening in our city. What's happening, Margaret? Do you know anything that's really going to be happening? No, quite a bit. All right, shoot it out to me. Okay, on Easter Sunday, if any, after we have the sunrise service, anyone hungry, come on down to the Greater New Bethlehem Missionary Baptist Church. We'll be serving breakfast, good old home-cooked breakfast, uh, grits, eggs, bacon, and sausage. And then on April 28th, it's going to be a big day in Seattle. Everyone mark that date. Yeah. It's May Camel's Day. May Camel's Day. <laughs> and then at night at... 7 p.m. at New Hope, they're going to have a big celebration in honor of her. I hear that. And there'll be many choirs from the city. And good folks out there, this is one of the saddest nights of all times. I must say, this is very sad to me. For the folks calling, what are we going to do? What can we do? Well, SeaTac Gospel Train has got to go in the roundhouse, and we don't know when she's going to come out again. We feel so uh, ha- uh, unhappy. That's and, right. But we love Crab, and Crab has been so good to us. We come praying a special blessing upon 
this host, she has Sister Camel, who have been faithful for many and many of years, serving her community and those who are around about. Oh, we pray that you would give her strength and give her power to continue on, mm -hmm. even though if you don't hear her voice over the air here anymore. Oh, God bless each one who have had dealing here with this broadcast, the engineers and everybody else who's associated with it. The Pacific Northwest Black Community Festival Planning Committee meets every second and fourth Sunday at the Royal Esquire Club, 1254 South Washington. Give your support to make this year's festival the best yet. An important message from the Seattle chapters of African People's Socialist Party and the National Black United Front. Every Wednesday at 7 p.m., you're invited to participate in a meeting of the Black Community Control Board. That's at the Sydney Miller Center, corner of 19th and Spruce. Unite Black people mentally, spiritually, hand in hand to overcome our oppression at home and abroad. Habari Ghani with Sister Lavette, April 14th, 1984. I want to thank you all for your support of CRAB and of the Music Room. And I'm afraid all good things must come to a halt at some time or another. And I want you all to know that I have loved doing this show. CRAB means a great deal to me, primarily because it gave me this opportunity to express myself and share the music that I love with you out there. We will miss 107.7. We've been on the air for, what, 21 years, 22 years, whatever it is. My name's Catherine Taylor. This has been The Music Room. And until we meet again, this is KRAB, FM, and Studio Transmitter Link, WAC222, signing off. Good night and so long. Thanks to Chuck Wrench and Jack Straw Cultural Center for making crab recordings available through the website krabarchive.com. Just listening to those few excerpts, you really get a sense of all the ways that community radio kept people connected by sharing local music as well as information about neighborhood events and organizations. There's also something really powerful about hearing your neighbors on the radio. And that brings us back to KYAC because KYAC was the Central District radio station. Well, my name is uh, Donald Dudley. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Allegheny County. I landed at Fort Lewis. Came here from Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, on a troop ship. It was raining and all, and dark and wet. So I went to sleep, and then when I got up the next morning, I walked down to the front door, the sun was shining, and I opened the door and there's this big ice cream cone out there. <laughs> Mount Rainier. <laughs> yeah. I was the first African American to control uh, a broadcast license on the West Coast. The soul of the Northwest, KYAC. We nicknamed it Kayak. And my cousin Sherwood called it KYAC, kiss your ass constantly. <laughs>
my first experience was sort of in my family. Back in 1948, my aunt was the first um, black woman uh, to have her own show. Her show was called Moving Around with Mary D. And she actually bought a uh, record store that she ran in, in Pittsburgh, in the heart of the black community. And she was broadcasting in the window from there. And her brother came on to do the news. And he was a... Um, actually a columnist for the Pittsburgh Courier. And he would always say at the end of every broadcast, and the walls keep tumbling down. Before Don Dudley came along, KYAC was called Kazam. And it, like many stations playing black music, was under white ownership. King Broadcasting owned the license. That all changed when the employees went out on strike and Don Dudley was brought in to help with the strike negotiations. Don ended up siding with the employees and buying the station, making KYAC the first Black-owned station on the West Coast. I was also the first Black manager at King Broadcasting. I was the first one. So the white ownership came to me to help them get out of the strike because they thought that I would be able to understand it from the perspective of advertising and what it takes to make it work and all of that. So they wanted me to come in and meet with employees and I refused because I said, you know, I need to understand their issues before I volunteer to come in and help solve them. Well, what they did was they sent a message, emergency message to my secretary that uh, they needed me to come by. And when I arrived there, here are all the employees, and here I am being introduced as somebody who agreed to help. And so I ended up, you know, listening to their grievances. And because I did bring them together, he said to me, well, we really need you to come and you, you can be general manager. And I said, well, what good's that going to do me? I'll be general manager. Well, he said, I'll give you 15% of the stock. And I said, you paid any dividends? He said, no. I said, then what good is 15% of the stock going to do me? And he said, well, I'll give you an option to buy. They never expected me to exercise that option, but I did right before the end of the first year. I bought into it and took over as general manager. Initially, they were, when I first got involved, they were on Madison at about uh, 14th. At that time, no black music was played on any white station. You weren't going to get any information about what was going on with the black community anywhere in the world, except that station, really, and stations like it around the country. I mean, we, we were in 90-some percent of the homes of the black community. We, we were the voice of the black community. One of the KYAC employees who initiated the strike that led to Don Dudley's involvement in the station 
was Frank P. Barrow. Frank is still making radio today. I came to Seattle in 1962. I graduated in high school in 62. And uh, three or four weeks later, I was sitting in Seattle. Didn't know anyone, young man out of high school. Are you familiar with Jet Magazine? They had a blind DJ picture in there. They used to have the centerfold in there, of best pictures of the week or something like that. And his name was Gordon D. Whitty, and he worked at KZAM. I saw it. I said, well, uh, it's time for me to go. I'll go out to Seattle and see what's happening out there since I see his picture. So that's why, that's why I arrived in Seattle, just uh, right out of high school. Then I went to military in 63, got out in 66. I came back out of Seattle on the day Martin Luther King was killed. That day I'll always remember. Day before 1968, I worked at KYC. And we've always been a community station. People would all call us sometimes before they call the police on issues. Okay, and they let us know, well, this thing is happening over here, could you check into it? And we just talk about it on the air, we'll have, we'll send our investigated uh, reporters, news people out. And you can, people can communicate where, uh, you know, somebody from KVI or Como or uh, King or whatever. You know, back in the day, Seattle was a segregated area, a segregated uh, media, where you have a lot of local stations think when they sense about it to the CD, when there's a lot of black folks there, they treat it like it was a foreign Territory. So we, 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 black people communicated with black folks. Okay, I lived at 22nd and Yesler. I knew the students in the 68, 69, 70, 71, 72 classes at Garfield, Franklin, Cleveland. They knew me. I hear people today coming, man, I used to run home from school to listen to you every afternoon for high school. You know. I did dances at the high schools. We also did dances at places like the Russian Center, uh, Yesler Terrace. Uh, Reina Vista, Holly Park. When you come to a city like Seattle and you're African American, the first thing you're going to do is how do I communicate with the black community? Back in that day was 1460 KYC. And one thing that we did at KYC, we played local black artists. We played the local artists. We had no trouble doing that, which a lot of stations today are not doing. But back then, we had. Uh, a lot of local acts, and they appeared on the festivals. We interviewed them over there, and at the same time, we played their music. Black and White Affair, Cold Bowling Together, Acapulco Gold, Cooking Bag. We got out and met folks. You broadcast from different locations, and that way uh, you, you, you reach an audience. Later March, next week, we're going to be broadcast from 1 to 3 at Joe's Fish Market. He'll have special sales, so we know how to come in and get that special. A lot of great black-owned businesses at the time, from gas stations to drug stores to cleaners, restaurants, uh, juke joints, uh, whatever. <laughs> Nowadays, you can catch Frank's Community Potpourri Monday through Thursday mornings on 1620 and 1420 a.m. When Al Doggett moved to the Central District in the mid-60s, KYAC helped him connect to the community. That radio station was a real hub, a real key. The beauty of it was that it was the communications hub. You know, you got your music and you got talk shows, you got information, you got what was, everybody knew what was going on because they had Vivian Phillips, they had different people. Um, but it was such a connective thing then, and then when it left and they couldn't, it just fell apart. All of a sudden, the community did not have that voice, did not know, because that was that people were calling in to these talk shows, and and you just got to know everybody and what was going on. Leon Carter gave up a steady job with Northwest Airlines to join the station's public affairs team. 
He was one of many Central District residents who had a voice at that station, alongside community leaders like Vivian Phillips, Pastor Patronel Wright, and Fred Cordova. It was just an extraordinary time. I, I was still working with Northwest Airlines, and I saw the guy who was the news director at KYC. Veltri Johnson was his name uh, at KYC, and I loved his voice. He had such a distinct way of delivery. And so I said, hey, man, how do I, how do I get into this? You know, how do I do this? He said, well, hey, man, why don't you come down to the station and meet the owner and so forth. So okay. A couple days later, walked in, he introduced me to the owner, and he asked me what I was doing, and I told him, you know, I got the voice for it, and I know how to write, you know, I can write a news story, and I can do things, I don't have to get any paid, just let me get the experience. He says, well, I could do this. I can only pay $75 a week. He said, but if you would apply, the Urban League has an OJT program that we can qualify, qualify you for, and they would pay you another $75 a week, giving you $150 a week. Well, heck, I'm making $500 a week at Northwest Airlines, why would I, and I got a baby and a family. Uh, why would I want to do that? Absolutely, I want to do that. It was the, 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 the hub. I mean, all, you know, the communications in terms of rallies and organizations and so forth. I interviewed so many celebrities, Stokely Carmichael. I interviewed um, Julian Bond. What's her name? Uh, with the big hair. <laughs> Angela Davis. The impact that you can take your message directly to the black community. Uh, that was a kind of a revelation. That's when the talk radio started, as was as a result of the civil rights movement. You know, you couldn't get coverage, you couldn't get people to come to your rallies and so forth, so what other way than through the radio station? So that's how we got the word out. Uh, my name is Vivian Phillips. I was born in Seattle, Washington. So I grew up right here, literally. KYC had two frequencies at one point. It was a AM and FM simulcast, 96.5 FM and 1460 AM. And that's when we were the most powerful. And that's fortunately when I worked there. I got a radio operator's license. I was an engineer. And that was what I was going to do. And, and broadcast communication became my thing. And the thing I think that was different then is that the radio station really saw itself as an extension of the community, truly, which means that we came out into the community. I did my show from Safeway on a number of occasions. <laughs> but it was cool because it was like I'm in the window on 23rd. People can see you. They can connect with you. They come in the store. It was good for the store. It was good for the radio station. We would do our show in the record store, and when the Whispers, which was a big group, and they came to Seattle a lot, when they came, they would come and... People could come and meet them and see them, and we'd be on the air together. So those, that was anybody that had anything to do with the radio. Mr. Beaver used to have a show on. I mean, it was like almost all the people in the community could come on the air <laughs> and talk about whatever was pressing in the community. When we lost our black radio station, that's when our community really started to dissipate, in my view. We didn't have a compass. 
There was no way of communicating easily what was happening in the community, not just in Seattle, but in black communities across the country. So we couldn't keep pace. And I think it was a time where we really lost. We were like out here disconnected because radio became syndicated. And so it was easier to buy a program from Westwood One and just plug that in than it was to employ DJs and a newsroom. So it changed everything. It changed everything. Every single story that we've heard about KYAC echoes this idea that the station really held the community together. The station went off the air in 1981 and there was a big funeral procession down 23rd Avenue. What happened? Why did KYAC go off the air? According to Frank Barrow, it was always hard to attract advertisers because there were plenty of big national companies who were happy to take money from black consumers, but who simply did not, and still do not, want to buy advertising on black radio. And then once black listeners started getting priced out of the neighborhood, those companies that did advertise on black radio felt that KYC's listenership was no longer big enough. Don Dudley had a few things to say about that. People were migrating south. They were getting priced out of their homes because the prices would go up and they couldn't stay there, couldn't survive in their own community. And we were having trouble really covering or reaching the black community because they were moving south. The only way you could make it as a, a black program station is you had to be in a market of with a minimum of 50,000 blacks, and that wasn't the market here. People's Bank was our main, main lender, and they withdrew their support, and KYC went down because when employees missed a payday, they pulled the plug. And that voice that in the community, the the black voice in the community. They lost it big time. And there are people out there now even that say that those were powerful and important days and that that was lost forever. I guess the primary thing you learn is how to meet challenges and overcome. And my dad's, one of the things he used to say to me, you know, a good run is better than a bad stand. <laughs> do the best you can, but if you're getting your butt beat, <laughs> better get out of there. The good run is better than a bad stand. <laughs> we are actually witnessing a recent and exciting return of community radio to Seattle Airwaves. There are now eight new low-power FM stations on the dial in the greater Seattle area, several of which can be heard in the Central District. KVRU 105.7 can be heard throughout Rainier Beach and the CD. Seattle University's student station is on 102.1 FM, and Hollow Earth Radio, broadcasting from their small but mighty studios at 21st and Union, is on the dial at 104.9. All of those stations offer training opportunities for people from the neighborhood who want to bring back the days of radio that is by and for the community. We want to end this episode with some hilarity. 
While radio and newspaper were how Central District residents stayed up to date on Seattle's and the country's black news and music, there was a short window of time in the 70s when television was also an option. Vivian Phillips and Lee Carter share an incredible memory from that time. And we also had um, a Saturday morning television program on Como. Eddie Rye, Feltry Johnson, Joan Houston, and Lee Carter all anchored this noon television program. And they let me, I used to be a production assistant. And I'm gonna tell you what the name of the show was. Every time I tell people this, they're like, what? The name of the program was Agen News, A-G-G-I-N. What does that spell backwards? <laughs> okay. Wow. We were on the ABC affiliate with the Ogden News. Nobody was the wiser. Ogden News. We did that on Channel 4. We, uh, uh, Nate Long, he organized that through his Oscar productions. That was, he got grants to train people like me in TV. That's how I got to learn television production. And so, that, yeah, Ogden News. We, yeah, we, 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 we had that joke on Seattle for two years. A-G-G-I-N, spell it backwards, it spells nigga. N-I-G-G-A. That's what Aga News was. And we had fun with that. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter, at Shelf Life Story. On Instagram, at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories. And on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag ShelfLifePod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening. <laughs>